Welcome to Newborn News, a podcast where we discuss educational topics for medical professionals who care for newborns. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Goley, a pediatrician in the UT Southwestern Newborn Nursery. Welcome back to the podcast. In our previous episode, we discussed the history and pathophysiology of neonatal hyperbilirubinemia, or jaundice. Today, we will discuss the evaluation and management of jaundice. So we're joined again today by Dr. Jessica Morse, the medical director of the Parkland Newborn Nursery. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me again. So now that we understand the pathophysiology of jaundice, what are some practical tips for monitoring jaundice in the newborn nursery? So the first thing what you want to do when you um, are monitoring a neonate for jaundice is you want to always visually assess um, during your daily exams on these babies. Um, And so when you visually assess, um, always keep in mind that jaundice progresses in a cephalocaudal manner. So in other words, it starts from the head and goes and progresses down to the feet. The hands and the feet are the last or the extremities are the last thing that will become jaundice. Oftentimes, families will, the first thing that they notice is they will notice scleral icterus um, as um, their babies become more and more jaundice, and that is typically the last thing um, to go away um, as the jaundice resolves. The other thing, um, some tips and tricks, um, when you visually assess a neonate, it's often very difficult to try to determine the level of jaundice, and we often find that medical students and residents have a difficult time trying to assess for jaundice. Um, and historically, we we do know that visually visual assessment of jaundice has been more um, has not been very reliable or a reliable tool. However, it can give you somewhat of a guide to be able to determine how significant the jaundice is, but it should not be, your visual assessment should not be used to make treatment decisions. So one of the things that I often have our med students or residents do when they're assessing for jaundice is knowing that the extremities are the last thing to become jaundice. I often will ask them to put the baby's hand next to their face because typically um, most of our babies will have some sort of facial jaundice at typically by day two of life. And you can oftentimes see the, visually see the difference in coloration between the hand and the face. The other thing um, that you can do is you can kind of have them push on the skin um, or blanch the skin. And as you push on the skin, um, you'll notice that the jaundice can become a little bit more apparent. Um, Again, um, our visual assessment is not a very reliable tool for determining jaundice. So then um, whenever you want to, as you're assessing for jaundice, you want to make sure that you follow your institution protocols um, when it comes to assessing jaundice on our neonates. Um, At Parkland, we do a daily transcutaneous bilirubin every morning, um, and that is plotted on the Bhutani hyperbilirubin risk nomogram. If you look at the Bhutani hyperbilirubin risk um, stratification nomogram, you'll notice that that you will plot the serum bilirubin on the y-axis and the postnatal age on the x-axis. And if you look, you want to know um, what your serum bilirubin is and then how old the baby is. Um, and as you can look, as you can see on this nomogram, you can then stratify this baby into low risk, low intermediate risk, high intermediate risk, or high risk. And these, what this tells you is the likelihood or how like are the risk that they will develop a significant hyperbilirubinemia that you will need to intervene. Also of note on this nomogram, you want to pay attention that this, that it only begins when the baby is 12 hours of life. And what you want to do is you want to make sure that either you get a transcutaneous bilirubin, which is what we do at Parkland, um, 
And then with the, based off of, and then we look at the Bhutani hyperbilirubinemia risk stratification nomogram. And if we notice that the TCB or the transcutaneous bilirubin is in what we call zone three or the high intermediate risk zone or zone four, the high risk zone, then we com- then we draw a serum bilirubin because these curves are based off of a serum and not a transcutaneous. And we often know that the serum, that the transcutaneous bilirubin, once you get on the very high end and on the very low end, it doesn't tend to be as accurate. So you want to make sure that you're making treatment decisions based off an accurate measurement. Once we have the serum bilirubin, we then go back to the Bhutani hyperbilirubinemia risk stratification nomogram and see where they fall, um, either in zone one, zone two, zone three, or zone four. If this baby also has a trans- has a significant hyperbilirubinemia. In other words, if we notice that the transcutaneous bile is in zone three or zone four, you also might want to go and look at the mother's blood type. Again, because one of the um, pathologic causes of hyperbilirubinemia in her neonate is abion compatibility. So you want to go and look and draw, go ahead and get a cord blood workup if mom is type O blood or RH negative. So it's just in terms of where this nomogram came from. So Bhutani in 1999 published a study um, that looked at 13,000 babies born in Pennsylvania in the mid-1990s. And they drew one serum bilirubin while babies were inpatient and then one serum bilirubin after discharge. And they looked at the serum bilirubin that was drawn while babies were inpatient and then the likelihood of the post-discharge bilirubin being greater than 95th percentile. And they found that for babies who are plotted out as the quote-unquote low-risk zone, so zone 1, there was a 0% risk that they would come back and have a a severely high bilirubin post-discharge. For babies in the low-intermediate risk zone, they found that they had a 2% chance of having high bilirubin after discharge. The high-intermediate zone risk zone or zone three, there was a 13% risk. And for the higher risk zone or zone four, there was a 40% risk of them going on to develop severe hyperbilirubinemia. Um, So when we look at the Bhutani nomogram, it kind of gives us an idea of how closely we need to follow the bilirubin or how much we need to be worried about them coming back with a significant hyperbilirubinemia that might need to be treated. Exactly. And that can also give you um, a little bit of a guide on when follow-up should be arranged as well. Um, So for instance, if you have a baby that is zone 2 or low intermediate risk zone, you may want to follow them up in 48 to 72 hours versus a baby that is in the high intermediate risk zone, you might want to follow up, have them follow up in 24 to 48 hours. And then after we look at the Bhutani Um, hyperbilirubinemia risk nomogram. There's another nomogram that we also use, and this is the phototherapy curve. Can you explain this a little bit more and what the difference is between the two curves? Yeah, so the AAP phototherapy guidelines, this is a curve that was published in the AAP in 2004, um, along with an exchange transfusion nomogram. Don't worry, more to come on that later. Um, That also uses the infant's gestational age and um, gestational age at birth, as well as the total serum bilirubin um, at the time it was drawn. Um, so again, you want to look at how old the baby use the baby's gestational age, but also look at how old the baby was when the serum bilirubin was drawn. Um, the most difficult thing about this nomogram is that there's three different lines, so we have to figure out which line to use. So, for instance, um, if you can see here, 
the top line here um, is for infants that are lower risk. Now, low risk doesn't mean that their serum that their serum bilirubin fell into the low risk or low intermediate risk category on the Batani curve. This is babies who are considered who are greater than or equal to 38 weeks and considered well. What does well mean? Well, for in, for all intents and purposes for this curve, well means that the baby does not have any risk factors. And those risk factors include isoimmune hemolytic disease, G6PD um, deficiency, asphyxia, significant lethargy, temperature instability, sepsis, um, acidosis, um, or um, any other major illnesses. So for all intents and purposes for our well newborns, um, a lot of our babies are going to fall into this lower risk category. And note for our learners, the risk that we're talking about here is risk for neurotoxicity versus the risk for Bhutani. We were talking about risk for hyperbilirubinemia. So just so we understand exactly the differences. Exactly. Um, so for most, again, so these are for our babies that are greater than or equal to 38 weeks and have none of the neurotoxic risk factors. This next line here is medium risk. So again, medium risk is not based off of the Bhutani curve, but based off of our gestational age of our infant and neurotoxic risk factors. So this line is for our babies that are greater than our 38 weeks and have neurotoxic risk factors, and for our late preterm babies or early term babies. So those babies that are 35 and um, six sevenths weeks to 37, or 35 weeks and 37 and six sevenths weeks. And then our high-risk babies are those that are our late preterm or early-term infants that have uh, neurotoxic risk factors. So once you have your serum bilirubin and you know that it fall, that it's on the high side, you're going to want to go to this AAP phototherapy guideline and determine where they fall um, and determine which, number one, which line you want to use, whether it's a low-risk baby, a medium-risk baby, or a high-risk baby and then figure out how close they are to what we call phototherapy level or light level. So how do you determine if a baby has um, isoimmune hemolytic disease? Well, if you guys remember, um, we asked you to draw a cord blood workup on any baby on any, um, on any baby in which mom had a type O blood type or was RH negative. Um, so if baby's blood type comes back and it is either A, B, or A, B, and mom had type O blood, you would also want to check for a Coombs. If that was positive, then you can be convinced that the baby has isoimmune hemolytic disease. Another thing to consider whenever you have ABON compatibility is to draw a CBC with a reticulocyte count to assess for hemolysis. Usually hemolysis is suggested if the hemoglobin is less than 12, Hematocrit is less than 35 if they're term, or less than 40 if preterm, or if the retic count is greater than 6%. This suggests evidence of hemolysis. Again, so for instance, if you have a 38-week infant and they are um, and they have ABON compatibility with evidence of hemolysis, you would need to change them from the low-risk line to using the medium-risk line. So can you explain to me a little bit what exactly is phototherapy and why do we use it? I've had some families come to me and say, well, if my baby's jaundice, can I just sit with him in the sunlight? Will that help the jaundice? Yeah, so sunlight and UV light can cause damage in the newborn skin, and it's unclear as to what amount causes and is safe to use. Um, usually I recommend putting sitting with baby in a, in a sunny window, not in, not in direct sunlight. Um, but that's not actually 
what we consider phototherapy treatment. And or if your baby crosses the phototherapy thresholds based off of this AAP phototherapy guideline, you're going to want to um, put them under what we call special Billy lights. Um, and it's a blue light that is in the 420 to 460-ish spectrum. And what this does is it converts, if you guys remember back to chemistry and the isomers, it converts it from the bilirubin from one isomer to the other. In other words, it makes it be from insoluble to soluble so that the baby can not only have not only has to excrete it out in the stool, they can also excrete it in the urine. Okay, so how do we practically manage these infants who we start under phototherapy? So you're going to want, you know, to use your institution-specific guidelines and protocols to guide frequency of subsequent bilirubin checks. So basically, you put the baby under these lights, and based off of what your institution guidelines are and your clinical judgment... So, for instance, it depends on why you think this baby is under needs phototherapy. Um, for instance, if a baby is under phototherapy because they have breastfeed, significant breastfeeding jaundice then, versus a baby that is under phototherapy because they have um, a hemolytic jaundice due to AVO incompatibility, um, you might need to check um, one less frequently than the other. For instance, a breastfeeding, uh, a baby that's under phototherapy due to breastfeeding jaundice you're not anticipating a significant ongoing reason to be jaundiced. So once they get under those lights, typically their jaundice is going to resolve very quickly and not continue to rise. However, a baby who has a hemolytic jaundice due to ABO incompatibility, those maternal antibodies that are causing the breakdown of the blood cells aren't going away. So there's going to be continued hemolysis. Therefore, the bilirubin has the potential, despite being under phototherapy, to continue to rise. So you might need to check more frequently. And you mentioned for breastfeeding jaundice. Um, in those cases, would you typically recommend continuing breastfeeding, or how do you manage feeding for those? So you definitely want to optimize breastfeeding for sure. Um, and it and it kind of depends. So you want to make sure, number one, that mom is pumping and working with a lactation consultant to make sure that we are and that there's no problems with latch and things like that. So you want to optimize it as much as you can. So you want to optimize breastfeeding. However, there may be some instances in which you would want to keep a baby under phototherapy and not allow them to breastfeed. Although this is not ideal and not something that we want, it, it will, it's actually potentially safer for the baby to continue to feed under the phototherapy lights. This is typically seen in babies that are and that are have a hemolytic jaundice that is ongoing hemolysis causing increased um, bilirubin levels, and the levels are rising despite being under phototherapy. It would not be um, it would not be well for that baby to come out for 30 minutes to 45 minutes at a t every three hours to breastfeed with mom. So in that instance, you may need to have mom pump and give her express breast milk and then supplement with formula to enhance um, excretion of the bilirubin. And those are typically severe cases. So those are cases where the bilirubin might be closer to the exchange transfusion um, level. So exactly. not just your our regular run-of-the-mill um, hyperbilirubinemia. Exactly. So in addition to optimizing feeding, what else should we consider when we start a baby under phototherapy? So you also want to look at family history, make sure there are no other potentially genetic causes. Um, and then you also want to make sure um, that you draw the newborn screen per routine. Um, again, because of metabolic causes, you also um, want to make sure that you've drawn a CBC to look at potential causes like such as sepsis, 
um, and other issues. What are some potential complications from babies um, being under phototherapy lights? Generally, phototherapy is very well tolerated, um, and usually the biggest complications are um, that infants typically don't like to be under phototherapy and away from their moms, so they tend to cry more and be a little bit more irritable. Um, and then they may have an increased risk for hypothermia because they do have to be undressed because ideally you want as much light to be reflected onto the baby's skin as possible in order to be effective. And remember, if you are starting phototherapy, you really want to have a baseline direct bilirubin because there is an, uh, something called bronze baby syndrome that can develop if the baby has a direct hyperbilirubinemia and you place them under phototherapy. And again, phototherapy is used to treat an unconjugated or indirect hyperbilirubinemia. It is not used to treat a direct hyperbilirubinemia, and you really need to find the underlying cause for that direct hyperbilirubinemia. So how do we know when to stop phototherapy? I, this is more of where I think the art of medicine comes into play, um, and it really is based off of kind of, again, looking at the clinical picture of the baby um, and the reason why they needed phototherapy. So was it, again, going back to our breastfeeding jaundice baby or our hemolytic jaundice baby? Um, you kind of have to look at the clinical picture. Um, you might want to have the levels be a little bit lower for the baby that has a hemolytic jaundice than a baby that has a... Um, breastfeeding jaundice because again our hemolytic jaundice baby when you stop phototherapy the hemolysis is still going to continue right it's not going to stop so the levels are would be expected to continue to to go back up versus a breastfeeding jaundice baby I would expect as feeding improves and um, those levels are not going to rise as quickly um, as they would in a, hemo a hemolytic jaundice baby um, for our purposes, you should follow your institutional protocols. Um, but at Parkland, we typically stop our phototherapy when the bilirubin is at least four points below light level. And so you brought up an interesting point. Um, so you often hear people talking about checking rebound bilirubins after stopping the lights. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so a rebound bilirubin is one that you get several hours after stopping phototherapy. It's kind of looking at, oh, like, what's the bilirubin going to rebound to after you've stopped therapy? And so usually the AEP actually does not fully recommend routinely checking quote-unquote rebound um, bilirubin levels. But again, it's kind of, you need to look at the clinical picture of what's going on with your baby. Again, going back to the two examples that we have, a baby that has breastfeeding jaundice, we wouldn't expect that bilirubin to jump back up very quickly. So it may not be necessary to draw in a, a, a rebound bilirubin in a couple of hours versus that neonate that has ongoing hemolysis in a hemolytic jaundice infant. You would expect those levels to go back up. So it might be necessary or might be wise to check a level before you send that baby home. Again, there's no set rule, and so you should use your clinical judgment. So an important point for our listeners is that the bilirubin doesn't increase because you've stopped the lights or the phototherapy. Um, we're just assessing for continued rate of rise. So it's not that us stopping is somehow causing it to get worse. No, definitely not. It's just, again, the clinical picture and what's physiologically going on with that neonate. Um, and a lot of times after stopping phototherapy, it's really wise to have that neonate follow up the very next day in clinic um, for to check on it and to recheck that bilirubin level to make sure that we're still doing okay. Um, there was one thing I wanted to go back to 
um, talking about phototherapy. Um, what does phototherapy look like when you want to um, begin this treatment for your babies? Usually, um, it is a bank of lights that are on top of the baby, and then you can add a, a blanket called a billy blanket that goes underneath the baby. The infant should only be wearing a diaper, and you need eye protection for that infant. There are, there are instances where this is done in a hospital setting. However, there are some cases in which you might consider doing phototherapy as an outpatient or in the family's home. Um, usually outpatient phototherapy involves just a billy blanket and it's not nearly as effective as the in-hospital phototherapy where you use the overhead lights and the billy blanket in conjunction. Let's see, what else did I want to say about that? So whenever you have an infant that has um, that you have determined that has an increased risk for developing significant hyperbilirubinemia in the next 24 hours or so, there are some things you need to look at. You need to look at how the baby is feeding. You need to look at whether the baby is well or not, well appearing or not. Um, and you need to look at maternal um, blood type. So some of the things that can cause, again, going back to our previous talk, some of the things that can cause a significant hyperbilirubinemia that are most common in the newborn nursery are breastfeeding jaundice, ABO incompatibility, and ABO incompatibility. So you need and sepsis. So you need to keep those three things in the back of your mind. So what labs do you need to draw, um, depending on the situation for your baby? So for breastfeeding jaundice, you typically don't need to draw any labs other than a total bilirubin and a direct bilirubin. But if you're worried about ABO incompatibility, you need to look at maternal blood type to make sure that is to see if mom is O positive. If she is, then you would like to get you should get a cord blood workup, a direct Coombs, and a CBC and a reticulocyte count. This will allow you to assess whether or not there is truly ABO incompatibility going on, if there's any significant homolysis associated with that ABO incompatibility, and if there if there's a possibility that the infant is ill. So what happens if you have an infant that you are have have placed under phototherapy? The levels are continuing to rise and are not quite and things are just not progressing in the direction that you would. If you have a baby that is well above the phototherapy guidelines, you want to also make sure that you look at the next nomogram, and that is the um, AAP exchange transfusion guidelines. Again, it's very similar to the previous um, the AAP phototherapy nomogram in that it has the same risk lines. So again, the top line is for infants at lower risk, and those infants are babies that are 38 weeks without neurotoxic risk factors, um, medium risk, and those are infants that are greater than 38 weeks with a neurotoxic risk factors, or our late preterm or early term infants um, without neurotoxic risk factors. And then our higher risk babies who are our late preterm, early term babies with neurotoxic risk factors. And as you can see, this nomogram, the phototherapy levels are, are the level at which you would want to do an exchange are much, much higher than what you would do to start phototherapy. So what is an exchange transfusion? An exchange transfusion is typically done through an umbilical line, and it's where one person pulls blood out of the neonate while another person pushes whole blood into the neonate. In other words, they are exchanging the volume, the blood volume of the neonate um, to get rid of as much of the bilirubin as possible. You can do partial exchange transfusions. You can do double volume exchange transfusions. You can do single volume exchange transfusions. It just depends on what is going on with that neonate. 
um, exchange transfusions are not benign and they typically carry a pretty significant morbidity mortality rate and should be avoided as, as best as we can. There are some steps that some institutions are taking um, before having to go to exchange transfusions, depending on the reason for the significant jaundice. Um, for example, if an infant has ABO incompatibility, um, it's an antibody-mediated process, right? So the IgG antibodies had crossed the placenta, came into baby, and are now causing baby's red blood cells to be broken down. So some institutions are using IVIG, for example, to bind the maternal antibodies to slow down hemolysis. That will in turn allow the phototherapy lights to work, to do what they do, so that the baby can then excrete the bilirubin without having to go to an exchange transfusion. Typically, exchange transfusions are done in the NICU and not done in the newborn nursery. So if you have an infant that is very close to exchange transfusion level, typically you'll want to consult your closest NICU. Dr. Morris, thanks again for joining us today to talk about jaundice. I think this has been really great, so hopefully our listeners have a really thorough understanding of not just why and how babies get jaundice, but how to actually manage it when they're faced with it in the nursery. Um, so we hope that you are more confident in your management of babies with jaundice. So Dr. Morris, to end the episode today, can you share with us your favorite part of your workday? Um, I love um, being able to work with families and teaching moms about their newborns. Um, especially those first-time moms who have all of the questions um, and being able to teach her how to just swaddle and comfort a baby is really rewarding. Sounds wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Newborn News. We hope you join us next time. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. If you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at newbornnews at utsouthwestern.edu. As a reminder, this content is educational and is not meant to be used as medical advice. Views or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the university.